Well, good morning, church. Uh, how are you going through the book of Judges? We've, um, uh, we've really only been in it for a few weeks. And it's fair to say that some of what we read in the book of Judges is fairly confronting. And um, a spoiler alert, because the reality is that it will continue to be so as we journey through. The book of Judges will have more to say that uh, is a challenge for us to try and interpret in our own minds. But it's important we understand its purpose. Uh, God has it here as to instruct us, to guide us, so that we might learn from the lessons of the past, the mistakes of the past, and by his grace, not continue to perpetuate them in our own walk and our own lives in the here and now. As I, as I look at the nation of Israel uh, back in the days of Judges, I can see some parallels with the society that we live in today. We live fundamentally in a society that has denied the one true God. Indeed, in a society that has created for itself gods of its own making that indeed it bows down to. Gods of sport, gods of beauty, gods of power. We've seen a little bit of that unfold in in the week that we've just seen through Canberra. Gods of comfort, gods of, of financial security. And if we're honest with ourselves before God, there are times when we, in fact, find ourselves bowing down to these gods. And what God desires us to understand is our own hearts. And it's through studying books like like judges that we have opportunity uh, to be confronted, as I said, with those mistakes of the past. When I was young, I had a fascination with the electric fry pan that, that lived on our kitchen bench top. I'm not quite sure how old I was, but I know that I couldn't see the top of the bench, so I was fairly young. But as a young child, I was told not to touch it. But I knew that this electric fry pan was not always hot. And partly because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, possibly due to my stubbornness, and most definitely because of my rebellious bent, this boy, this child, was fixated as to whether that electric fry pan was always unsafe to touch. So if you had known me as a small child, you would know me as a little guy that seemed to constantly run around with a burnt blister on his thumb because the thumb was the implement that I used to check whether the fry pan was hot or not. For me, the question is, are my parents really telling me the truth? Was it really always dangerous? Because the reality is sometimes I put my thumb on it and it didn't burn me and it wasn't hot and it wasn't on. Was I content to follow my parents' direction or would I prefer to go my own way? and eventually, at some point, get burnt. You know, as I've continued to read through the book of Judges, I can't help feel that there is something of a rebellious child in the response of the Israelites toward their God. God would raise up and deliver the people, but eventually, they went their own way. And for a period of time, at least, they were permitted to do so. But eventually... 
eventually they get burnt. Repressed by the very ones they didn't drive out as God asked them to. The biblical principle is simple. Bad company corrupts good habits. We might say today, one bad bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Israel faced the challenge of every single Christian challenge that we indeed face today in the world that we live in. How does our message transform those that we want to proclaim it to while at the same time we live in society and we do not allow that society to conform us into what they want us to be? These Canaanite nations would corrupt and lead Israel astray. Like a little child fascinated with what they've been told to avoid, the people of Israel dabble where they shouldn't. Now, if you haven't already noticed, the truth is that Judges is descriptive, not always instructive. Now, what I mean by that is this. If you were counselling someone on how to treat their enemies or how to deal with conflict, perhaps the first section of God's word you would give them would not be judges to go and read. Destructive, not necessarily instructive, at least not, not in the sense that we read other parts of the Bible or in the New, Tis- New Testament, for instance. Jesus is the one par excellence to follow as we read the Gospels. His life is kind of like a roadmap of how we ought to be living our lives. The epistles point out that as followers of Jesus, here therefore is how we should live. Here's what it looks like to live on a practical level the life of a follower of Jesus. But when we look at Judges, we see a descriptive narrative. And it often tells us the facts, but the lessons we are to take away aren't always as apparent as they might appear. Sometimes there are lessons we miss because so we're so enamoured with the storyline. I mean, this writer is a great storyteller and the, the account that we're going to read today is no exception. It might be that we try to judge people's actions from where we sit thousands of years into the future, interpreting their behaviour this side of the cross. We are blessed to grow up in a stable, secure society and naturally we use our norms in deciding what we think of these characters at times. Now as Cam mentioned last week, God uses the most unlikely of heroes to rescue his people out of the hands of his enemies through the book of Judges and this morning's story is no exception. Remember Cam mentioned last week he used Ehud to rescue the people from the Moabites. Ehud, a left-handed man, possibly with a right arm that didn't function as well as it could. A man who was from the least important of the tribes of the time. A man who was so trusted by King Eglon that he was allowed into his personal chamber without any security. This morning is about a godly, faithful woman. It's about another woman who's not even an Israelite. It's about a reluctant man And over and above everything else, a God who hears the cries of his people. Please turn with me to Judges chapter 4. We're going to read um, from verse 1 in Judges chapter 4, if you have your Bibles there. Judges chapter 4 and from verse 1. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagoim. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord their God for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord your God, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zenanim, which is in Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Haresh, Haguim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the armies of Harash, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebor the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Hebor, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand in the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Hebor, took a tent peg. And took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. So here we find at the start of uh, chapter 4, Ehad has died. Um, And Israel wanders again. The cycle starts all over again. We're familiar with it now. The people rebel. God sells them into, into slavery, the nations around them. Eventually, the people turn back to God. They cry out for help. God hears them, and he brings, and he raises up a judge to save the people. And they have peace for a, for a period of time. 
Like a child not quite content to listen to their parents' instruction, they dabble where they shouldn't and they find themselves burnt. Sold into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now Jabin has a general called Sisera. He has 900 chariots of iron. I was trying to think what that would be like for us today. 900 chariots of iron if you were just a ground soldier. I guess it's a little bit like ground soldiers today coming to fight a battle and there in front of them is this armada of tanks. I mean, before they even get close to them, they're likely to be destroyed. This was a significant army, 900 iron chariots. Historians tell us that Sisera was also known as a cruel despot who took many of those he had defeated into slavery. And this was particularly true of the women. Historians tell us that he was, if you like, a trafficker of women. And this unfolding story becomes even more poignant given his downfall comes about because of the work of two women. Now, we, we didn't get to read chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 records Deborah and Barak's song. Um, we're not actually going to read it, but we will have a look at a few select verses that help us to understand the story that has unfolded in chapter 4. And there, there is a few verses in chapter 5 that give some credence to what historians tell us about uh, the cruel way that uh, Sisera dealt with the nation of Israel. Turn with me to chapter 5. We'll read from verse 6. Chapter 5 and verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. The travellers kept to the byways. The villages ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When the new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? There we've got the setting of what's going on in Israel. There is fear to be even seen in public. The highways are abandoned. The people were scared to be found for what might happen to them. Perhaps taken away into slavery. Perhaps even worse. We're also told that there's a distinct lack of fighting implements found throughout Israel. And then as we move on in the story, we're introduced to, to Deborah. I've got to say, as I've continued to read this account and as I've continued to read through the rest rest of Judges, my opinion of Deborah continues to rise. I think that she's probably one of the only judges that we can read about in Judges that we can say was truly godly from start to finish. Not only that, but she's the only judge in this book that is also called a prophet. She was well known throughout the nation and the people respected her sage, godly advice. But the the story of Deborah also speaks to another topic in the church, universal. And it would be a disservice as a leadership team not to briefly discuss that this morning. And it's the topic of women in, in roles of leadership in church life. We believe as a leadership, we teach and hold firmly to to the position that all people are created equal, male and female, every race created under God, in his image, all significant in his eyes. We acknowledge that women are more than capable of being godly leaders, able to interpret, apply, teach, 
proclaim God's word and able to do so in many spheres of life, also doing so with his blessing and in in the Spirit's power. I myself am married to a beautiful, uh, godly woman uh, who the Lord has used to bless, correct and remind me of my responsibilities both inside our home and within the broader context of of servicing God's kingdom. I I liken her a little bit to Deborah in how she deals with Barak. And my wife has been used by God to gently correct and encourage me at times throughout my Christian walk. I also have two daughters. I have two daughter-in-laws who constantly remind me as I watch them and listen to them of their intelligence, their gifting, and their many abilities that in so many areas of life far outweigh my own. Yet in both the Old and the New Testament, there are certain roles that God wants men to fulfill and certain ones that he requires women to fulfill. So in the Old Testament, we know priests were only to be men, and not only that, but only men of a certain tribe. In our text here, I don't know whether you notice that um, in verse 4, we're actually told who Deborah's husband was. Neither Joshua or any other judges were associated by who they were married to in Judges. The point is that even in her duty as a prophet and judge of the people, Deborah is able to identify herself in a home where her husband has a key role to play. Ladies, we want to say that God has a special calling for you. Your life is much more than simply matching the curtains to the, to the cushions on your couch. We, we know that, we acknowledge that. You may have leadership gifts that used rightly will be a tremendous blessing to those you serve. And we encourage you to express them. But we would also encourage you to do this while respecting God's order as, in fact, Deborah does. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was in Deborah's position, I might just say to Barak, listen, you're not doing what God wants, you just get out of the way and let me do it. But Deborah understood her role, and she was committed to helping Barak to fulfill his. So to recap, Ehud has died. The people follow after God, the gods of the Canaanites, that they were supposed to have driven out of the land and they begin this cycle. The Lord sells them into the hand of Jabin, the Canaanite king, and by extension, his right-hand man, Sisera. Now, I hope you grasp the significance in verse 2 where it says that the Lord's involved in this. It says the Lord sold them into the hand of the king of the Canaanites. God's involved. They're subjected to such torment that they were not even safe to be on the main roads and they had little in the way of military hardware to rise up in order to fight their enemy. And now we're introduced to Deborah, both a prophet and a judge of the people. She was well known and so was her office. Her office was a palm tree funnily named after her between Ramah and Bethel. If you can picture the, the, the map of Israel, we've got the Dead Sea down the bottom and then we've got this squiggly Jordan River and up the top we've got the Sea of Galilee. Well, Deborah was somewhere around just to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. 
And at the height of the people's despair, they cry out and the Lord hears them. Now, we, we, we deduce as we read through this account from, this, from the story of Barak that he's actually asked at some point by the Lord to rise up and overthrow Sisera and by extension, Jabin. But because she's a prophet, because God has told her, Deborah says, hey, I want to have a chat, Barak. And she confronts him and asks him, why have you not fulfilled what God has called you to do? Now, there are many commentators that interpret Barak's response in a number of ways. But to me, there is one thing that's clearly obvious. Barak's view of God was nowhere near as mature, as defined, as Deborah's. So he says, Deborah, I'm only going if you come with me. But scripture records that, in fact, Barak's faith is transformed through this experience. We know this because he's actually named among the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And it is of significant to us because, as with most of the judges, indeed, as, in, as re, with regard to most of the, the leaders of God through the Old and even the New Testament, there is great reluctance initially on many of them to do the task that God has asked them to do. Yet here is an, another example of God making strength out of weakness. Hebrews eleven thirty three and 34 says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdom, kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. This is the experience of Barak as he continues to walk the path that God's called him to do, that Deborah is encouraging him to fulfill. God turned someone who's weak into someone of great strength. But you know what? If we're honest, there's, a, I, I think, a little bit of barrack in most of us. We want to do what God asks us, but it's hard, even scary sometimes. How can we share our faith with others? I mean, what if they reject us? What if they mock us? Or they ask questions that we can't answer? What if we're left in an, an awkward situation? Why do you tell me that I've got to be the first to restore a broken relationship? I mean, why can't they, they can't, why can't the other person make the first introduction, say the first words? What if I confess my sin to another Christian like the Bible says, but they look down at me, perhaps they laugh or even worse, go and gossip to someone else about my struggles? Perhaps you're in a position that you know you need help from a brother or a sister. But it requires a great step of faith to be able to go and, and share with them and ask for their help. Ask that, that, that you become accountable to them for some vice, some sin that you're stra- trapped in that you're struggling with. Perhaps God is calling you to a special task or ministry. It requires a step of faith. Maybe it's as simple as being in a small group and you're not sure how people are going to respond with what you're thinking, with what your thoughts are, so you prefer just to remain quiet 
Or perhaps the reason you don't go to small group at all is because uh, it's threatening to expose yourself, to have other people come to know you a little better. It often requires a real step of faith towards God's path for us. But that's actually the point, isn't it? We walk by faith, not by sight. By faith, not with human wisdom or reason. If we walked according to the wisdom of the world, how often would we walk God's path for us? Let's be honest. If we walked according to the wisdom that of this world offers, how often would we be walking God's path? You see, like a muscle in the body, faith grows as it is exercised. As we exercise our faith, as we continue to experience the faithfulness of a mighty, just, holy God, we continue to, to um, grow our faith so that when the trials of life come, we have that to fall back on. God is strengthening us through it. What I believe the text does reveal to us about Barak is that he is a capable military leader who was actually willing to risk all to follow through with God's plans, granted that he needed a little encouragement from someone more mature. All this despite knowing the glory would not be his but a woman's. Now, at this point in the story, as we, as we read up to this point where Deborah says, the glory's not going to be yours, it's going to be a woman's, then the, our natural thought is, well, Deborah's talking about herself. So, as we find, Barak's response is sorted. Both Deborah and, by extension, Deborah's God is going to be with Barak. Sisera and his army of chariots... 900 iron chariots are at the ready. Barak comes down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men with limited resources and training. But once again in the Song of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5, we're told something that helps us to understand that God is directly involved. God has intervened in what transpires. Please turn with me to chapter 5 again, reading from verse 19. Chapter 5 and verse 19. The kings come down. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanak by the waters of Megiddo. They, did, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. Barak's men come down from the mountain. Sisera and his chariots are in the valley, at the ready, in the Kishon Valley. And what happens? There's a storm. The Kishon Valley, I've never been there. Apparently the Kishon Valley um, has, has a dry, basically a dry riverbed. At, at the most, it's just, just a wadi, just a small trickle. But what happens to a dry riverbed when God, in his wisdom, sends a storm? The waters rush down Mount Tabor and that dry riverbed becomes a torrent. We just read about it. Now, I have a brother-in-law that um, uh, was in the Vietnam War. Um, He was a mechanic whose primary job was to keep the machines of war operational. 
While he doesn't talk about the war, he has shared that one of the greatest challenges that they had was to keep the tanks moving despite constantly getting bogged, particularly during the wet season in Vietnam. He has pictures of tanks literally rolled on their side, buried to their axles in mud as they tried to get through. And he recalls witnessing an American captain having a monumental dummy spit because the tanks that he needed to progress were bogged. And he recalls that, he recalls that the captain actually took his side arm out and he was so frustrated, he, he was just so angry, he was within an inch of actually making someone pay for that. As you think about it, what greater enemy to horses and chariots being effective in a battlefield than a flood? Than mud that causes iron chariots to bog down and sink. Mud that quickly exhausts the horses trying to pull what amounts to dead weights behind them. Cicero's army understand what's happening. Cicero himself understands what's happening and he flees. Barak and his men knew what was happening and they marched forward. They rout Cicero and his army. And as we read from verse 17, Cicero flees in panic and he just happens to come by the tent of a woman called Jael, a Kenite. Verse 11 explains the background. Jael's a Kenite, um, comes down the line of Moses' father-in-law. Jael's husband appeared to have some sort of a dispute with someone amongst the Kenites, so he decides he's going to go out by himself, on his own, pitch a tent far away from anyone else. I mean, I don't know, maybe he's some sort of doomsday prepper wanting to live off the grid. I, I, I had my kids come a little while ago and, and they said, Dad, have a look at this. Have you ever seen Doomsday Preppers? And I said, I don't know anything about what you're talking about. But, so I watched one episode with them and I was gobsmacked with the fact that this Doomsday Prepper show um, recorded people who, for some reason, thought the apocalypse is coming. The best thing for me to do is to buy a remote house is to tape up my windows so that if there's a, a nuclear war, we'll be kept safe. And on top of that, I'm going to teach all my kids how to shoot guns. Now, I, I digress a little bit. Perhaps he was like a doomsday prepper. But it's amazing to think um, that people that can't get on in society or have a view that they're far more capable of withstanding things that they're not. Anyway, here Cicero finds himself walking past the tent Jael says, hey, come in here. I'll hide you. She gives him refreshments. Now, the women of the Middle East were well familiar with the use of tent pegs and hammers because one of their tasks was to erect tents while their husbands, I don't know, went about their secret men's business. I don't know, maybe they were sitting around the fire uh, chewing the fat while their wives were putting up the tents. But that was what was common practice in the Middle East. Jael knows who this man was that is about to pass her tent. She invites him in, gives him a beverage to calm him down. Before you know it, big brave Sisera's dead to the world, asleep. Like any person who lived under the tyrannical rule of Jabin and Sisera, she knew the terrible heartache 
he had caused to those within its borders. And she does the deed. Tent peg, hammer, nailed him to the ground. Hence, as we mentioned before, though not the one we would have expected, Deborah, though not even an Israelite woman, Jael gains praise for being the one that removes the thorn that Sisera was to the side of the people of Israel. So in chapter 5 and verse 24, it is said that Jael is to be blessed among all women. Though I want you to remember, just as in verse 2, we see God is at work in selling the people into the hands of Jabin. God is at work in rescuing the people. Verse 23, on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. God is at work. So there we have it, all the ingredients of a great story. Good eventually overcomes evil and everyone kind of lives happily ever after. Well, not exactly, not quite, but at least there's 40 years of, of rest for the people. But if all we, we, we learn as we read uh, passages like what we've read in chapter 4 about Barak and Deborah, about Jael, about Jabin and Sisera, is a good story, then we've missed the point. What are some of the lessons that we can take home? I wonder, like Barak, how, where, or in what circumstances might God be wanting you to exercise your faith? Is there something that God is calling you to, challenging you with, that requires you to step out in faith? To step out in that place where God might transform your, God might transform my weakness, my fear, into strength, into something mighty for him. What about on the other side of the coin? Perhaps like Deborah, how might your words be used to encourage or inspire someone to walk the path that God has called them to walk? How might your words be used by God as an instrument to bring someone to Jesus and to help them along the path in following Jesus? I sometimes think we Australians are so too quick to make sure people don't get ahead of themselves. And sometimes by doing that, we miss out on the opportunity to bless others. To have an impact for God, for others. I wonder if, like the people of Israel, we're dabbling in things that we shouldn't, things that could easily lead to our ruin things that perhaps no one else even knows about, but God does. Israel's downward spiral does not start the day that Joshua or Ehud or Deborah or Barak or any of the other judges die. It's not as if, oh, they're dead. The next day, we're going to walk away from God. These things have been simmering in the background. Few people have made a mess of their lives, actually do it intentionally. There's a process that starts. Often it starts small and before they know it, they're in over their heads. It's at the point of no return. Friends, are there things that you or I are testing the water of 
that are going to lead to addiction, to hurt, to broken relationships with God, family or friends. Perhaps it's bitterness or gossip. Perhaps there's selfishness bubbling away, jealousy lurking somewhere in the background. You see, we all acknowledge, we all understand that sin is insidious. If we're not alert, it can so easily ensnare us, trap us. Like that small child testing whether the fry pan was hot and sometimes getting away with it, so following after what we more than often in our own hearts know is not right, sometimes we get away with it and so we continue. And it subtly leads down a path that eventually will cause us to be burned. We might get away with it for a while, but God loves us enough to discipline us for our own good. If there's a particular vice, sin or attitude that you feel trapped in, please talk to someone about it. Talk to a friend, a trusted friend. Come and talk to one of the leaders in church, someone that you look upon in church life and trust. Ask for their help. God desires us here at Canterbury Gardens to be a community of God's people that will bear, that will carry each other's burdens. Will you be willing to do that? Will you be willing to be part of that process? Will you be willing to exercise your faith to the extent that you're prepared to share that with someone else, if required? You know, if we're honest, there's a question many of us are asking ourselves as, as we continue to read through the book of Judges. There's a question on some of our minds, perhaps it's in passing or, some, or perhaps it's, it's really at the forefront. How does the God of Judges fit into the God we learn about in the New Testament? How does the God found in Judges turn into the God of love that seems to be described in the New Testament? Well, I want to emphasize that our God doesn't change. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't wake up one morning and realize, I've been too harsh, I'm going to change my nature, I'm going to change my character. If, if that were the case, he would not be God. He would not be a perfect, righteous, holy God. God does not change. It is the same God. Just give me a few moments to show you what I mean. Hebrews 12.4 says this, God disciplines those he loves. It's one of the key lessons through the, through the uh, book of Judges. God continues to discipline the nation of Israel. They're his, it's his nation. He has chosen them because he has chosen them. Not because he, they deserve it. He's chosen them because out of his love, he has chosen to choose them. It's a key principle in the New Testament, is it not? God disciplines us. God loves us enough to discipline us, to correct us. In his grace, he saves people from the penalty of their sin. We see that in Judges. The people cry out, God saves them. It's one of the planks of the gospel message, isn't it? God saves from the penalty of sin. Without his intervention, the nation would be lost. The nation cannot save itself, could not save itself. Again, is this not a key plank in the gospel message that we want to proclaim to people? To those that we mix with, without God's intervention, you'd be lost. When people cry out to God, what happens? He hears them. Now, at the risk of my repeating myself, 
It's another key plank in the gospel message, isn't it? We want people to cry out to God, to come before their God humbly, confessing their need of him. And then they will readily find him. But unlike the cycle Israel found itself in, God sends not only one to act like a judge, pointing us back to God, he sends a prophet, a priest and a king. Jesus Christ, God's own son, to bring us into eternal relationship with himself. He's done it because man's history shows that we're incapable of doing it for ourselves. I mean, think about it. If Israel, God's own chosen people, couldn't make themselves capable of being right before a holy, righteous God, what hope do I have? What hope do we have? Jesus came because only he could restore that link between a holy, righteous God who, as the Old Testament reinforces in the book of Judges, does not tolerate sin and justifiably judges it. You know, there is, there is as much violence, actually, in the New Testament as there are, is to be found in the Old Testament. It's just that in the New Testament, most of it is focused upon Jesus. Now, think with me for a moment. Deserted by his own, mocked, beaten, scourged, given a crown of thorns, beaten on the top of his head, on that crown of thorns, that it would continually work, his, work its way into his head. Hung on a cross, that universally despised and particularly cruel way to die. Pierced with a spear. Even more than that, God lays on him the punishment for us all. All this despite him being totally, completely innocent. taking the wrath of God upon himself in order to pay the price that you and I could not. The punishment that God justly placed upon the religious people of Israel through the book of Judges was taken for our sake by Jesus Christ at Calvary, at the cross. I don't know everyone's heart here. Um, Sometimes it's a challenge for me to even honestly know my own heart. But there's one thing I do know. If you cry out to God, if you call upon him now, he will be found. He will be your God and you will be his child. Uh, Let me close in prayer. Father God, we want to commit our way to you. Uh, We want to thank you for the book of Judges, for the challenge that it brings to us. May we be a people, a community of your people who will have a message that transforms the hearts and minds of those around us. And if there is any way in us that is, that is uh, conforming to the pattern of this world that would bring you dishonour, I ask that you would point that out, that we might walk your path boldly, confidently, knowing that the one who is within us is greater than the one who is in the world. We ask these things in and through the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen.